happens to unfortunately require me, where this time we actually get record. Praise be. Hail oh. Soba. <laughs> so, this time, part two, take two, take retry, two. Yep. of Their Eyes Were Watching Halle Berry, yes. a.k.a. covering Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Now, uh, to preface, this is now our second time doing this. We've had alcohol. Mm-hmm. We've also had pizza, though. Yeah, so um, what happens when, when we royally fuck up, or mm-hmm. I royally fuck no, up? No, I'm willing to share the yoke of blame with you. Um, this time we made sure we hit record. Anyway, yes. um, instead of having, you know, lemonade and gin, or tea, iced tea and gin and pimento cheese, which we did last time, you have sparkling white wine yep. and uh, Little Caesar's pizza, yeah. because it's delicious, and right now it's Friday night. Yeah, I mean, I... I... Let's set that bar real low so anything we do is just phenomenal. Fabulous. So a little content warning just to take care of it in the beginning. There is spousal abuse and discussions of rape and a lot of abuse. So a, a horrifying amount of abuse. More abuse than I uh, recalled when I first read this. And I'm pretty sure the more books we read, the more abuse we're going to discuss. So I apologize. I think it only gets worse. I think next month is going to be pretty heavy. Yeah, next month is... Uh, Tony Morrison month. Tony Morrison month. I just realized, I think we're covering Beloved, like, right before Mother's Day. Oh, God. Maybe this is a horrible plan. I think maybe this, is, this the... is great. I feel like it's the best worst idea we've ever had. I mean, we've had a lot of best worst ideas. Have we? I mean, we started this podcast. Okay, fair. <laughs> so, Victoria's short story long. Um, as usual, you all know that I can't do a synopsis without it taking forever so i mean that's why i'm here i'm here to really make the short short story so the story is janie crawford now middle-aged but confident and attractive returns to eatonville florida after running away with her younger lover named tea cake immediately tongues start wagging she returns to her home and is greeted by her friend phoebe watson phoebe has already tried to shut down the gossip but she wants to know what her friend has been up to so janie tells the story of being raised by her grandma also known as nanny after her mom ran off. While Nanny loves Janie to death, life as a previous slave, where she was repeatedly raped and ended up conceiving Janie's mom, and the fact that Janie's mom ran away and Janie's mom was knocked up by a school teacher and possibly raped, um, it, it kind of makes sense why she's all messed up. Yep. So Nanny wants to marry Janie off to this old dude named Logan Killix as soon as Janie has any sort of sexual awakening. We'll get to that. We'll definitely get to that. So that Janie has some sort of security and social status. Yes. She is barely a teenager, so this whole thing is super creepy. Yeah, but also, like, the whole, like, it was a different time. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm trying, okay. So, Logan is kind of an asshole, Mm -hmm. and he treats Janie like she's just there to work for him. And Janie is basically looking for any excuse to go in away from this crappy life. Accurate. Uh, One day, this smooth-talking man with big plans named Jody Stark, a.k.a. Joe Stark, Sees Janie working and they start flirting. Not to be confused with the Starks from Game of Thrones. I honestly went Iron Man, so I'm glad that we represent both major nerd factions. There we go. And then right now it's, what is it, Game of Thrones and Avengers Endgame season. It's so so much Stark. So much Stark. Stark raving. (laughs) I'm proud of that. Thank you. You should be. Thank you. So Joe keeps saying he wants to spoil Janie and treat her right, and they go all the way to this black town called Edenville. And like, one of the first all-black towns. Yeah. Unfortunately, they get there and there's really not a whole lot going on. There's yeah, almost like when white people uh, give an idea but don't set up infrastructure that bad things happen. What? I mean, all the time? All yeah. the time. So, Jody decides that it's his time to shine, like Marge on The Simpson. He buys land, opens a store, becomes mayor. Mm-hmm. However, he pretty much pushes Janie off as worthless and just really a figurehead as uh, his status. Yeah. So he ends up being verbally abusive, then becomes physically abusive, and after she gets called out for stupid shit one too many times, Janie tells the, basically the whole town that Joe is impotent and he's got a really bad temperament. So Jody shuts down, gets sick, won't let Janie send for a doctor, and he ends up dying. So she's secretly delighted about it, but she has to play the widow role because that's what's expected. I feel like that's the most Southern thing. Like, that's very Tyler Perry movie. It is very Tyler Perry. Oh, Tyler Perry, I hate you. So, enter Tea Cake, who is a super hot younger dude who comes to start hanging out at the store. He sees Janie, he's like, yeah, I'm into cougars. And he ends up declaring his love for her, but she's like, I really don't think you're into this. Thanks for trying, though. 
He eventually convinces her that he is in love with her. They end up running away and getting married. Mm-hmm. And then she finds out T-Cake is a gambler. And they end up working in a field. Yeah. At one point in time, he ends up beating her to show their people that he's in charge of her. Ugh. A horrible hurricane comes and wipes out everyone. And Are there tolerable hurricanes? No. Okay. I mean, weird. maybe if they're, like, super light, it's, like, tropical storm. Like, okay. I was... We only pulled one board off of your window. Right. Um. Anyway, T-Cake gets bitten by a rabbit dog, As starts do. to go crazier than Ned Grell and Poe in a gutter. Nope. And Janie has to shoot him to protect herself, but she ends up getting arrested, going yes. to court, being acquitted of murder because it was self-defense, which rarely happens. Yeah. And with nothing but her overall, she ends up returning to Edenville to tell her story. I mean, this is very, like, proto-diary of a bad black woman. Yeah. It's it's really painful to read her story, though. It's like it is. Know. It's it's remarkably painful. It's very painful. So one of the things you're going to hear a lot about if you do any kind of research is the fact that this is written in vernacular. Yes. So it's written how people speak. Right. And some people find that very difficult. Yes. Um, one of the ways that you can get around that is if you listen to the audiobook, especially the one done by Ruby D. Or not being a racist asshole. Yeah, there's that too. Sorry. Um. I, I will say I had my own uh, dual consciousness stuff to deal with with the vernacular use because I know when I was growing up and the way I was raised was always to never sound like that. Um, almost to the point of it being a little bit aggressive and intense, like having to be like hyper competent because if I sounded too hood or too ethnic, like that was scary to white hegemony and thus scary to my safety. I had to sound educated. I had no choice. Um, also, because as far as my family was concerned, it was insulting if I didn't sound educated. You don't want to sound like you've been out in a field. We've worked too hard. Which is really interesting in this, because Janie does kind of get her own education in town and still ends up in the field. Yeah, that tends to happen to black folks sometimes. And by sometimes, I actually mean a lot. This is just a reminder that Amanda is a person of color. I wish someone would say something. <laughs> I wish at this stage, like, wow, that there's a mouthy one over on the other side of I that just, mic. I just had this image of you going, bitch, I wish you would. And <laughs> because that's exactly what it would be. I wish. I I cannot wait for the day. Come at me. So there's a lot of symbols in this book. Too, too many, almost. Yeah. Um, Janie's hair is one of the big ones. Yes, it is. It's often described in phallic terms. You know, before uh, we started recording, we had a very long and uh, fascinating conversation. The fascination that white people have with black hair, and even like the way like, black people talk about black hair, because there's two camps. There's relaxed and there's natural. Um, I think around the time this was written, relaxers were starting to become a thing, or at least like more aggressive straightening treatments. It's just frustrating. I mean, you've heard us talk about Amanda going for her white hegemony appointment. Two weeks ago. <laughs> Hair still looks white hegemonic. Um, you were telling me a little a story, too, about some coworkers as well. Oh, yeah. Like, there's, um, I, I let some of my defenses down, and I promptly said, if this was the one opportunity that you ever wanted to touch my hair, you could. And immediately, like, there were hands upon my hair. Um, so, I mean, I... I guess I can understand because I know I have that impulse a little bit with having relaxed hair with natural hair, but I'm also a decent person most of the time. So my instinct is to never feel entitled enough to touch someone's hair. Um, Like the three main rules that you want to follow is never touch somebody's hair. Yeah. Never touch somebody's tattoo. No. And do not touch pregnant women's bellies without their permission. Because like, honestly, to me, that's not even like a race thing. Like I wouldn't go like running my fingers through Tori's hair without like permission. I mean... I'd probably just be like, is this like a Pantene Pro-V commercial? Um, just, your fingers are probably going to get caught because I have naturally curly hair. I mean, like, so, like, again, like, as a black person, I have, like, weird fetishistic feelings about, like, your hair. You look like Merida. Oh, God. I do look like Merida, which is a problem sometimes. I don't see a problem with that at all. So, like, if you ever wanted to feel the other end of that exoticism, here's me admitting I have slight fetishistic feelings about your hair. This is the part where I should warn all of you, never, ever let me watch the Disney movie Brave with you, because I will go on for 30 minutes about everything they got wrong about Scottish culture, and it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, 
also see me watching Princess and the Frog. Fair point. I have a lot of feelings. There, there are a lot of feelings. Um, in the book, Janie's hair is also kind of a source of lust. Yes. And uh, feelings of control. So yes. at one point in time, she's working in Jody's shop and he sees another guy checking her out and immediately demands that she starts covering her hair at the store. Yeah. And so it's like a big deal when she stops wearing her head covering and stuff like that. You see that a lot. And like, that's very religious, but also very like just grossly patriarchal. Yeah. Um, there's no further cop. I think when we recorded this last time, I had more nice words about that, but no, it's just grossly patriarchal and religious. And I mean, some people, they're more comfortable covering their hair than others. I mean, I'm, my my camp of feminism has always been if it's your choice, then that's fine. Right. Like my my thing is I've always said that my mantra with feminism is that feminism is the radical notion that women are people. Mm-hmm. So for me it's never like you are bad because you are a housewife. If that is your wish, knock yourself out. Right. That has to be your desire. That cannot be forced upon you by patriarchal expectation, which because of the patriarchy it probably a little bit still is. But as long as that's, like, your genuine want, like, I'm not here to, you know, wag my finger at you. My brand of feminism has never been women yelling at women. And I know, you know, at least a couple of really awesome people who are, they did choose to be stay-at-home moms, and they're great right. with it. But, I mean, they also use it for, one, making sure that their kids get a really good, you know, example. Yeah. But they also go out and do stuff, too, and right. see things, and it's their choice because they want to do that. Right. Um, and if they have the opportunity, great. Amen. Um, but I do also know a lot of moms who prefer to work, and there ain't no shame in that game at all. None whatsoever. So this is going to be, this is, I think we made ourselves go first on this before, but... Yeah, we really had to get the sexual awakening pear tree out of the way because I think we were both like equally kind of weirded out by it. Yeah. So there's. I'm gonna read the passage to you. <laughs> she was stretched on her back beneath the pear tree, soaking in the alto chant of visiting bees, the gold of the sun, and the panting breath of the breeze. When the inaudible voice of it all came to her, she was a dust-bearing bee, sink into the sanctum of a bloom, the thousand sister. Calyx's arch to meet the love embrace and ecstatic shiver of the tree from root to tiniest branch, creaming in every blo- uh, blossom and frothing with delight. So this was a marriage. She had been summoned to behold a revelation. Then Janie felt a pain, remorseless sweet that left her limp and languid. You know, um, Tori, we've talked a lot about me writing fan fiction. <laughs> this is the most veiled thinly veiled sexual thing I've ever like I'm actually a little uncomfortable and I like for a brief time made a living writing smut I feel like this is how Fifty Shades of Grey should have been written I mean it's still very heavy handed but you can tell you think she's being subtle yeah like it's sort of um I'm gonna I'm gonna make a reference that'll date me there's a song by Gwen Stefani called Bubble Pop Electric which is about losing your virginity in the backseat of a car and there's this triplet at the end that's um drive-in movie and then uh drive-in to me. And then, like, another line that I don't remember. But it's like, oh, Gwen Stefani, you think you're being clever. We, we can't go into my feelings about Gwen Stefani because we'll be here all day. Cultural appropriation? No, lots of anger. Lots oh. of anger. Some of that, too. But um, I grew up in Southern California. Y'all know that. Um, anyway, yeah, so... The sexual awakening pear tree. It is it like a giving tree that hands out condoms? <laughs> oh my god! I just imagine like Shel Silverstein sitting there being like, "Okay." I mean, he was really porny. Yeah. Listen to me. We've got to make this tree like sexually aware. Mm-hmm. If you don't know who Shel Silverstein is, he was a. Poet that children would know, but also, like, did some weird, gross, porny stuff. Because, you know, you gotta make a living. I mean, Roald Dahl as well. I don't like him. <laughs> he he had some very uncomfortable thoughts about other races that I don't like. Yeah, that, that's a lot of what we review, huh? Uh, okay, so don't yeah. mind me. I'm just gonna panic and make sure we're still... Re- oh, we are still recording! Look, we Crazy. did it right! Okay. Alright, so now that's gonna be a paranoia. Anyway, so... I mean, it's a good passage, and, like, when you talk about, like, things that 
spark that in you. Um, I mean, it, mine wasn't a tree, but you know, I'm not here to kink shame anyone. <laughs> My mine wasn't a tree, but you know. I mean, all I get from al- from trees are allergies, not like sexual healing. But yeah, that's true. That's that's very accurate. Though we did uh, sing sexual healing a lot the last time we recorded this. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So another major symbol is the hurricane. Um, the passage that was written is the wind came back with triple fury and put out the light for the last time. They sat in company with the others in other shanties, their eyes standing against crude walls and their souls asking if he, capital H E, meant to measure their puny might against his. They seemed to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. Roll credits. You know, like when you ever you read a book and you get to that passage and you're kinda like, oh, I hate cinema sins, but that's like the one thing that I will say that I've maintained from them in my collective consciousness, because I do hate cinema sins very much. But um, I do live for that whenever, like in a movie, it's like almost like we're the Avengers. Like ah, roll credits. <laughs> <laughs> do you tell me when the lambs stop screaming, Clarice? Oh, Silence of the Lambs! Right, almost like it was clever. Oh, that brings us back to the one excellent point that uh, we made that I think we should maintain is I think for Halloween we should do Will and Hannibal. Oh my God. So there was this, this, this or is this great moment in my brain where Amanda looked at me and was like, we're kind of like Will and Hannibal. And then I was horrified. If if you guys haven't watched the TV show, it's, it's yeah, it's also like weirdly fetishistically queer. Strangely homoerotic. Which, I mean, I'm fine with, because Mads Mikkelsen, I'm fine with it. But um, I made that statement because uh, I'm, us- I'm usually the one in charge of slicing and dicing when it comes to, like, the pod. And the way Tori looks at me, I do very much feel like I'm Hannibal. And I just have, like, Will just... Listen, you know how to make a cheese plate, okay? I mean, I'm happy to be the doctor of your delight and also dismay. <laughs> so there's a... Not a t-shirt. There's a lot of themes that run through this book. There are many, many themes. Um, big one, speech versus silence. Um, Janie spends a lot of time keeping her mouth shut. Yeah, as women were entitled and, and encouraged to do. Um, there are moments where when she finally does find her voice, there are always extremely powerful moments. Yes. Like her calling Jody out for being impotent and... You know, basically finally standing up to, for herself and saying, no, 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 you're an a-hole, I'm done. Um, there's a part where she's talking to her first husband and she goes, what would you do if I just left you? Mm-hmm. And he acts like, oh, just shut up and go to sleep. But it like actually really hurts him. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, anytime she explains her own story in court mm-hmm. or to Phoebe, those are the most powerful passages. Anytime she explains herself. Right. I guess it's the Southerner in me that, um, because of the whole, like, uh, angry black lady trope, I was always sort of encouraged that silence is your best friend. Because there is that fear, if you are more demonstrative, that it will end what, it would end poorly for you, as it did for her a few times. Mm-hmm. So I will say that, like, I was always... It was, it was strangely um, bizarre to me. Like, this wasn't empowering as I feel like a lot of other um, African-American narratives are because that yoke of white hegemony is so heavy. And what's interesting is this, this book often gets referred to as being very pro-feminist and very Mm -hmm. pro people of color, but a lot of it is still so tied into old cultural norms and things like that. I mean, maybe for the 1930s. Yeah. It would have been considered to be empowering, but it's not what, I mean, like you still couldn't have a credit card or like really voice your opinion at all. Right. I think, um, this goes back to a conversation that I had in the office that, um, I think what's frustrating about like black narratives is that everyone's still in bondage and we can't ignore that. But, um, I personally didn't grow up in bondage. So that, like, I've never... Well, about that kind of bondage. Yeah. Well, and also not growing up. I was a consenting person. Um, my parents loved me very much. 
backpedals furiously. Harnesses are not for five-year-olds, unless they're those monkey backpacks, <laughs> and that's a whole other different thing. But, um, you know, not not to rope in Black Panther, but, like, that's why I loved Black Panther so much as a movie, was, like, wow, Africa's cool. Yeah. Because it was always, like, yeah, that place your people were taken from, but also, like, there's nothing there. Like, you're kind of looking at it going, yeah, I mean, Wakanda forever, okay. And, and yes, I know Wakanda's not real. There was this one very rude uh, white person on there, and like, Wakanda's not real. Like, yeah, neither is Asgard, so. Yeah. But, yeah, like, it's, it's strange because it's almost like a lot of the places where a lot of people will read power into her. Um, I just sort of read it as a woman, be quiet. You're making this difficult for everyone. It's an interesting take, yeah. Like, I mean, like, especially, like, hegemony exists for a reason. And while it's terrible and awful, like, bucking against it in a way that, like, ruffles too many feathers, like, I've always struggled that, like, with tone and everything. Like, I struggled as a podcaster with tone. That is I, it, like, a survival thing? or I think it is. And also, like, it, I'm Southern as hell. Learning how to communicate. You were always told that, you know, you attract more flies with honey rather than vinegar. You don't get anywhere by being that. But also, like, you don't change anything by being that. We're also Slytherin. Oh, painfully. <laughs> so, I mean, I've again, like, I've never had the problem of needing to be, like, super demonstrative. You just... I'm excruciatingly charming and charismatic, so... Seriously. Um, another major theme is power as, and conquest as a method of fulfillment. We see this toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. Um, we see this mostly with Jody. Um, his big thing of being, you know, the man, being in charge, being the one who buys the property and sells the property. I'm a big strong man. Look at me, big strong man. I'm the mayor. This is my property. I know she's a woman, but uh, she's property. Like, there's a lot of that. Um, there's also a lot about relationships versus independence. Yeah, I struggle with this one, too. Uh, a lot of Jamie comes out more when she's on her own or telling her story away from a relationship. Yeah. Versus when she's actually in one of these, she's usually, well, let me just take a step back from my my place here and just kind of hang bothered, out and be quiet. That bothers me so much because I... I've never understood that. I've never understood um, that, like, you lose yourself in a relationship. Like, that's one of the things, like, if I've asked you about how the weather is and you respond, well, my boyfriend says, like, we're no longer friends. And, like, I come off as being, like, really anti-relationship and, like, really bitter and petty. And it's like, no, I'm not. Well, I mean, I am. But not, <laughs> but not in this regard. Like, not everything's just to tie back to your relationship. And, like, not that that isn't important to you, but, like, John C. Calhoun, like, that being your identity scares me. And that's a lot of where people get into trouble with relationships. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, what women have been told to do for a very long time right. is take up his interests, find out who he is, don't make yourself the center of attention. Right. And honestly, the worst relationships I've personally ever been in are ones where I did that. Right. Um, ones where their interests became more important than mine. Mm -hmm. And when you lose yourself and then you get out of it, it becomes so much more destructive. Yeah, because then you have to rebuild yourself back up. And that's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I admit that having come out of an abusive relationship, like I know how hard that is to do. But that's always been something, again, like that really struggles, like that you have to be on your own. Like I hope that one day that, Someone does look upon this demon lovingly. They will. And that I don't lose myself because of it. Like, that's a fear that I have. Like, wow, will I become one of those sycophantic little brats that, you know, can only flitter around and talk about their significant other? And there's a difference between, like, the very beginning when you are so excited and so obsessed with the situation. That's normal. That's natural. Mm -hmm. But when you've been with somebody for a long time, when you are just... A piece of them yeah that's scary um i'm sure i'm sure it is like also that idea of being that vulnerable with anyone horrifies me yeah it's really weird the first time that you kind of lean over and you're like did i just fart in front of my significant other and they haven't told me i'm horrible and the devil or 
I'm going to eat chips out of this bag naked at two in the morning and you're okay with it. That sounds great. Or I'm going to cry because somebody really close to me has passed away and you're not going to judge me and you're going to be cool about it and not make it about you. That all sounds lovely. It's very different. But we as a culture make relationships look like the be all end all. And and, and by that I mean like marital relationships. There are so many others like friendships are super important. Having, you know, people that you can talk to platonically, having that love for another human being that isn't sexual. um, Those are are major, but still having the ability to identify who you are as yourself. Right. And I think, like, I will say there was one part of this that I did relate to a lot, which was um, a lot of Janie's more abusive relationships happened when she was away from friends and family. Like, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was my friends who saved me from my abusive relationship. And I would say... Yeah, you know, this stuff happens, and it's like, hey, uh, that's about 15 red flags. And honestly, that's what you'll always see. Yeah, we're going to go back into my crazy stuff about serial killers. Um, when somebody is extremely abusive, one of the first things they do is they cut you off from yeah. everything that you know. And they do it on purpose because then it's easier to manipulate you. So I will say, though, a lot of it, like in my instance, was a lot of me distancing myself from others because... Mm-hmm. It was hard to talk about my relationship because I knew there was some parts of it that were weird, but then, like, I emotionally couldn't handle the criticism. And then when I realized, oh, wait, it's valid and I'm in danger and I'm neck deep in red flags right now. And I think that's where a lot of where Janie goes in this, too, is she's so secretive about TK and so secretive about their relationship. And then when she gets popped in the mouth, she doesn't have anywhere to go or anything. Like, that's, like honestly, do. that might have been the most powerful part because, like, that was, like, full, like, me and my last relationship was, like, I didn't realize that I was so deep into nonsense until it was, like, oh, snap! <laughs> and then I had to, in my overalls only, go back to my friends and be, like, so, um, here is my memoir. If I die young, bury me in satin. <laughs> And I think that's one of the reasons that she ends up telling this all to Phoebe Watson instead of just kind of like writing it in a journal or something like you'd <laughs> Sitting see. at a train station like Forrest Gump. Just... Oh my god. Series of postcards. I would. Dear journal. Oh god. Today I was a white male of privilege. Anyway. Oh Forrest um, Gump. I don't like that movie. That movie is hard, man. So I love my mom. Mm-hmm. But she had a tendency when we were younger to not remember what the rating system was or not look for it so i saw the movie the rock um i saw and mom i'm not calling you out so please don't think i'm mad i I adore you um we ended up seeing forrest gump and i remember my mom when jenny comes out on the stage in the balloon thing or whatever covering my eyes and being like nope not right now i'm like my sister too and like when they're in vietnam the same thing like nope 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 and i'm like Mommy, what happened to Lieutenant Dan's legs? And my poor mom being like, I'm a single mom. I am doing the very best I can. I swear to God. I saw The Green Mile at an uncomfortably young age. I was like nine. I feel like that movie gets quoted a lot lately. The I'm tired, boss. Oh, too too much. Because we're all emotionally scarred. Yeah. Yeah. Religion? Religion is culture. There's a lot in this. Yeah, so much. Um, that tends to happen a lot in African American communities because that, that tends to happen when you have nothing else and you are stripped from the land. You uh, you really dig your heels in on a place that you can. And Zora Neale Hurston was really big into folklore and religion and stuff like that. She was an anthropologist first and foremost. Mm-hmm. She actually went and spent some time in Jamaica and Haiti and wrote about voodoo and culture and belief systems out there in a book called. Uh, Tell My Horse, which is amazing. It's so good. It's so well written. And it's it's one of those books that I've now checked out twice from the library uh-huh. because I think I'm done. And then I'm like, no, 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 no. I need to reread this. Yes. Um, a big theme in this is community. Yes. Um, the community you belong to, where you feel at home, what's mm-hmm. most important to you, that kind of stuff. Yep. And then our favorite topic, our bread and butter, which comes into every single podcast Yes. Racism and gender inequality. Um, you know, there's definitely, uh, the African-American community has its own, uh, very special brand of toxic masculinity, which you see a lot in, uh, the hitting of women, mm-hmm. uh, especially because that whole trope of, uh, black women being mouthy, it's not really a trope, it's just kind of real. 
I don't know what it is, but we do tend to pop off a little bit. I mean, again, part of it's survival, part of it. Oh, absolutely. And like, and I think that people kind of forget that. Because like, especially like if, if your first time seeing the sassy black woman is living color, then you don't know that that's hundreds of years of having to protect your family mm-hmm. and having to protect yourself and having to make yourself almost like intentionally unattractive to avoid like rape and being beaten and stuff like that. Like a lot of that is very intentional, but it's also ingrained in a strange way. Like I don't consider myself more mouthy than others. And then I'll listen to myself in comparison to other people. I'm like, Oh, I'm full Medea right now. What's interesting too is, is like you see this with Nanny as well in yes. this book, her whole thing about, you know, you have to do this and you have to do this and we have to protect you. And we have to, because she literally lived, most of the worst case scenarios right she was a slave she had no power whatsoever right so uh, it's it's horrifying yeah but overcompensation uh when you're raised in like black families is very very true of like i mean like i know like my grandfather on my mom's side like generation after sharecroppers like i think like actually lying his parents might have been sharecroppers so if you have like how like my grandfather talked to me and my cousins in comparison to, like, if we were white, how they who would talk. It was very, like, protective, but also, I mean, you learn things early on that I'm sure most kids don't. I have a really good friend whose family is mixed, and the conversations they have to have, yep. especially, you know, in the recent years with things like Trayvon Martin, where uh. it is... If you get pulled over, be exceptionally polite. Yep. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Do everything that that cop tells yep. you. And, I mean, my friend, she didn't, she wasn't raised that way. I mean, she was raised white. And yeah. If you get pulled over, be nice to the police officer. Everything's yeah. going to be fine except your ticket with grace. Yeah. And then having to explain to her family, okay, if you get pulled over by a cop, I need you to be like A plus 100% where you need to be. Yeah. Because I want you to come home. No, I mean, and I was taught very early on, like, I was always taught that um, you could be doing everything right, but if you guys get pulled over and you're with your white friends and you're in the back, you're the one going to jail. Right. And we've, we've made this joke before when we've driven <laughs> around. We have. Um, That if we ever get pulled over, even if I'm the one doing 90 in a 55 zone that they're gonna look at you first right like um i think when we were recording this last time i shared the story so i'll share it again um i was driving home uh for christmas and i had a bunch of presents in the back and i was pulled over because i was in the wrong i will say that i was in the wrong i was tailgating uh, a semi truck and i also didn't have my lights on because i like to live dangerously in a fucking prius (laughs) um and i got pulled over and the cop you know he flashes his little light at me flashes the light in the back he's like Got a lot of stuff back there. What you got? And I said, full on. That's a question for civil asset forfeiture, and I don't have to answer that. Um, so for those of you who don't know what, what civil asset forfeiture is, is um, if the police assume that what you are doing when it comes to uh, items or money could be used uh, nefariously, they can just take it from you. You see it a lot with um people like buying cars off Craigslist, where they have like a few thousand dollars in their car. Uh, if the cops are like, hey, we think you're going to buy a drug with this. They'll just take that money. And it's very unlikely you're going to get that back because how do you win a court case that's you v. cop v. your money? Also, then you have to factor in all the costs of being in court. Yep. If you can afford a lawyer, if you're defending yourself, court fees in general. Yep. So I was a little bit mouthy to a police officer, uh, which I shouldn't have been. And I actually remember I was on a call with a few of my friends and I got really, really quiet and I hung up. And uh, in the time that I was being interrogated by the police, they started a hashtag that was free Amanda, which is very, very nice. <laughs> like, I was like, I was getting ready to drop a mixtape. Like, I was going to jail for going, like, a little bit over the speed limit. I was fine, no ticket. But no, when I finally reached home, I told, you know, my aunt was like, you know, what happened? You're running late. I'm like, I got pulled over. And I'm like, I got pulled over. And I didn't get shot. She starts laughing. And then it's like, oh, but sweetie, like, that happens. Like, that happens to us. Don't do not do that. Right. So. Racism. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being, like, in elementary school, and 
where I was raised, the population was mostly Hispanic, Vietnamese, and then, you know, some white and like, strangely enough, like one or two black kids. And that was okay. like the extent of it at our school, um, which was always very strange to me because then, you know, you move someplace else and you meet a lot of folks of color and you're like, oh, well, this is normal. What the heck is wrong with Southern California? Um, Mostly the property. That was yeah. So I remember elementary school acting like racism didn't exist. Mm-hmm. We're all equal now. Everything's great. We all treat each other well. Everything's wonderful. And that went on through high school. Yep. And then I got to college. Yep. And you started hearing things. So shout out to UCI, University of California, Irvine. Woo! Um, I get a sponsor. One of the number one things that you will hear it referred to as the University of Chinese Immigrants. Because we have a lot of students from Asia. Yeah. And you know what? They all worked their asses off to be there. Yep. But it's very interesting to watch people be like, let me tell you about this school. I preferred under construction indefinitely. I thought that one was a better brand. I'm here for that. But suddenly finding out in college that, yeah, no, certain races get pulled over more in Irvine. Yep. And, uh... Certain people are driven over the border and dropped off. They used to pick up homeless people in Irvine and drop them off in Santa Ana. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, It became a big ordeal out there. I'm sure. Right. Um, It was, it's interesting when you find out about your hometown and just go, oh, this is, this is not normal. This is terrible. But I mean, that colorblindness exists because, like, I mean, I, I mean, I was, I'm African American, and I had very similar colorblindness. I'm from North Texas, where you know there are African Americans that are a little more, uh, air quotes, fluid than others. But where I'm particularly from was mostly culturally abandoned white hegemonic black people. So I grew up with very similar colorblindness. I don't think I got black indignant until I found out about like the Tuskegee study. And then I think I've earned the right to be black and dignant. And if you don't know what the Tuskegee study is, look it up. Please look it up. Please I feel like we've mentioned it. it literally every podcast. I think we have to every podcast because it's something it's that's still was awful. So horrific in American culture. Yeah, in American history and and we we don't talk about it and it's very frustrating. But yeah, I feel like we've mentioned it almost every podcast because it's necessary. This is what we do. Yeah. Also, the segue, um, if my family can be survivors of the Tuskegee study and I still get vaccinated, vaccinate your damn children. We have measles again. 100%. Unnecessary segue, but, like, we have measles and I have asthma, so, like, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, religion is culture. I'm going to throw this in here again. I know we already covered it a little bit. We did. So, in San Antonio, a lot of times on, what is it, Good Friday, which is yes, today, today when we're recording. Mm-hmm. It's also when they hold what's called the Battle of the Flowers. No, that's next week. Oh, it is? Yeah. I thought they was off this week. No. Oh, they get next week, too. Yeah. Anyway, so Battle of the Flowers before yes. Ignore the Good Friday thing. We just got that out off this week, Texas. Mm. Um, Battle of the Flowers is a big deal. Fiesta is a big mm. deal. Used to be Catholic. Yes. And it's the only thing in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're just going to close this business down. It'll be fine. Wait, oh, yeah. What? Yeah. Used to be very, very Catholic, which is interesting, um, that San Antonio likes to run away from Catholicism, which in all fairness, I think everyone kind of does. But I will say also, uh, as a Catholic, we don't tend to help ourselves very much. Like, um, I got very upset. I went to a, one of the missions and there was a Franciscan brother who was like, I'm so glad that I get to sit here and walk in the footsteps of like my, uh, my pioneer brothers. And I'm like, your people orchestrated to genocide. And I don't mean, like, you were people as in white. I mean, you were people as in Catholic. Like, what you all did to Mexicans and to Native Americans was abhorrent. You are not carrying on a legacy of anything, you glass-blowing tart. And we're not going to go into the Alamo because I want to continue to live in Texas without getting shot. Oh, you mean the fact that it was a battle partially over slavery? (laughs) Yes. Anyway... This I book, will I will fight people on it. This book is full of amazing quotes. It is. If you go to Spark Notes, you can get a bunch of them. You can. You can tattoo them on your body. Um. But I mean, I wouldn't tattoo anything on my body. I'm very fickle about everything, so. Yeah. If I did ever tattoo anything, it would probably be the 
what's been attributed to Michelle McNamara, which is it's chaos be kind. But oh, I like that. I do want that Anthony Bourdain quote that is a uh, happiness is the absence of cynicism. I like it. Mm-hmm. So a quick look at Zora Neale Hurston, which is unfair because I feel like there's so much more that can be said about her. I would love like a like a PBS miniseries about her. That would be amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I am and not surprised we don't read more of her work. We'll go into that a little bit more. Yep. Um, she was born January 7th, 1891, mm-hmm. passed away January 28th, 1960. Mm-hmm. Her main focuses, as we said a little bit before, were anthropology, folklore, and the racial struggle and experience of African-Americans. Yes. Their Eyes Were Watching God is her most famous book. And it was mm-hmm. published in 1937. She states stated that she wished she could write it again, and she disliked all of the books that uh, she'd written. Big old mood. Big mood. Definitely. <laughs> um, she was the sixth of eight kids. All four of her grandparents were slaves. Mm. She really did come from Eatonville, where her father was a pastor and eventually also the mayor. Also a real uh, first attempt at an all-black community. Absolutely. Um, it was one of very few at the time. Yes. And one of the most functional. Yeah. Sad. Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, we were talking about when you give an idea, but you don't give infrastructure. Yeet. Liberia. Liberia. <laughs> so uh, Zora Neale Hurston attended high school at Morgan College, which mm-hmm. was the high school division of the historically black college, Morgan University. Woo! She could qualify for free high school education because she told folks that she was born in 1901 and took 10 years off her age. Yeah, you know, that happens when your people don't have records. You know that Zora Neale Hurston is children, right? Uh, absolutely. 100%. Completely. Um, she was highly educated. She went to Howard University and she became one of the first Zeta Phi Betas initially, which is, or initiated, which is traditional, a traditional, hi, I can talk today, I swear. You're doing great. A traditionally black sorority. Yes. And she went to Barnard College of Columbia University. Mm-hmm. She got her BA in anthropology and conducted ethnographic research. That's where researchers actually see how people react in real situations. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, we're going to set up this study in a sterile environment. I thought um, you were going to go like full prison study. Oh, the prison study scares the crap out of me. Rightfully so. Um, she went to school with Margaret Mead. Woo! Woo! Tea Cake is based on a student that she ended up marrying named uh, Percy Puntner. Mm-hmm. They divorced. She got married again a couple more times. Praise be. Um, unfortunately, she ended up broke, mm-hmm. had a stroke while she was living at the St. Lucie County Welfare Home, and died of hypertensive heart disease and was buried in an unmarked grave in the Garden of Heavenly Rest in Fort Pierce, Florida. Uh, a, a true shame. For shame. Thankfully, the absolute badass that is Alice Walker Woo! and Charlotte D. Hunt found an unmarked grave in about the same area that Zorro was buried mm-hmm. and put a marker there. Mm-hmm. And Alice Walker is one of the reasons that we actually read Hurston at all. Amen. Um, Zorro was ignored because she was, quote, not political enough, end mm-hmm. quote, for the Harlem Renaissance. And frankly, she wasn't a white male author. So, right. I mean, I also will give some credit to like the Harlem Renaissance thing. Cause like, yeah, she wasn't, you know, really moving and shaking, which hegemony. Mm-hmm. Um, when Alice Walker bought the marker, she ended up writing an article in Miss Magazine and Hurston's book suddenly became more interesting to the general population. Yes. Cause it was, Oh, well, who is this person? Right. Her papers after she died were ordered to be burned, but her friend Patrick Duvall put out the fire gathered the documents for posterity and gave them to the University of Florida uh, libraries. Crazy. So, like, can you imagine that your friend's, like, walking in your house? No, 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 no. Yeah. I'll, I'll take those. It's fine. Also, I love that her headstone says a, a genius of the South. Yes. Very awesome. Tune. I, I wish that I could live up to a portion of that. So, we referred to a lot of resources. Yes, we did. For this podcast, because we always do. Amen. Um, the book itself, obviously, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Yes. Um, Spark Notes, which we aren't sponsored by, but we wish we were. Crash Course! Crash Course! Because we love it. I, if, if I got an inkling that John Green listened to the pod once, I'd probably cry. Hi, John Green. He's still on social media sabbatical. He was just in Sierra Leone helping people. I like it. He's great. Um, there, like mentioned before, there is an audiobook read by Ruby D, which was, mm-hmm. who was played nanny in the movie. Yes. Their eyes were watching God with Holly Berry. Who I've said who is to um be my depiction if there is ever not a biographical movie of me, but Halle Berry Circa Monsters Bowl. Mm-hmm. Which is very specific. So yep. I'm I'm assuming Halle Berry will die before me. 
Uh, so we'd have to resurrect her somehow, like a Futurama Lucy Lubot thing. No, I'm scared. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> There's actually a thing from the National Institute of the Arts as well about their eyes for watching God. Mm-hmm. And definitely recommend reading Tell My Horse. Um, that is so fascinating about culture and life and absolutely coming from America and going and getting information about another culture that's still in line with yours. But also not like in that gross fetishistic white savior way that a lot of ethnographic right. studies are because like I've I took anthropology when I was in college. I'm like, and the savage did so like, stop it. Oh She's very respectful <laughs> yes. and very much like, these are my people. But she will also call out every once in a while. She goes, all right, ladies, this we was got gr- it yeah. slightly better in the yeah. U.S. than they've got here. Because yeah. they're right here, they're about the equivalent of a donkey. So let me tell you about what's happening right. with this. I do love that about her ethnographic studies. Like, yeah, I had to read a lot of those. Very much. And these primitive cultures sitting in their huts. Like, yeah, you get a lot of uh, snooty white men <laughs> writing. It's like we watch them in the typical garb, and it's like, no, sir. Or um, my favorite is the immense amount of passages dedicated to Native women's breasts. Mm-hmm. Just too many. Like important stuff is happening, but like, let's spend several pages on boobs. That feels like a biography waiting to happen. Native breasts. I, I will. I will co-sign. Okay, so did this book do anything for us now, and did we have to read it in school? You may go first. So I didn't have to read it in school. Okay. Um, I kind of wish I did, but there's also a caveat to that, too. This book is amazing, but I would not have appreciated it in junior or senior year of high school. Right. Um, having read a lot of the commentary by high school freshmen on the book, uh, there's a lot of folks who do not have the emotional capacity that you have to have mm-hmm. when you read this book. Once you've done some living and you've had a life I mean especially as a woman and as an adult woman having the you know fight and keep moving it's very different than having to read it when you're in high school and the hardest thing that you've had to deal with is like what lunch you're getting yeah what lunch you're getting can I afford tater tots with this the corn dog like after you have to soak some of the tired out of your feet yeah are you proud of me for that I am thank you so much uh I think this is in the basket of books that all young black people get like this it's a color purple beloved's probably in there in like a dvd copy of roots which is not fun uh i've i've admitted during this podcast that i have a bit of a dual consciousness struggle with it that i do struggle with the vernacular use because it sounds uneducated and illiterate it makes me angry because i spent too much time in college to have my people sound like that (laughs) Uh, but I agree, like, I definitely, as a young person, I was mostly just kind of mad at it. It's like, you know, another poor-sounding brown person out in the fields lamenting. And now as an adult, it's like, wow, this is really powerful, and Zora as a person needs to be studied and remembered. So I do still have some of my issues with it. Like, I do still, um, have some qualms about it being as feminist as people say it is. Like, the most agency Janie shows is shooting a man with rabies. Yeah. That's the most agency she shows. And even then she gets bit. So, oh, we we didn't uh, keep this little hangover over. Do you think that she dies at the end? I really hope she doesn't. I really think she does. So at the very end of the book, um, when she's about to, for lack of a better term, put tea cake down. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that I don't either. Like that. Let's, uh, let's reverse that. Back up a little bit. Uh, before tea cake is uh, quietly sent off into that good night. There you go. Before they drove tea cake out to that special farm up north. That sounds more patronizing. He's a black person. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. That sounded somehow worse. Before she had to defend her own life and shoot tea cake in the face because he was going to kill her. Okay, but There we go. There we go. Um, He bites her. Um, and as he's affected with rabies, there's a big discussion of, I mean, out, not in the book, but outside of the book yeah. of whether Janie is coming back to do her swan song yeah. before she goes full rabies mental, yeah. like Edgar Allan Poe, or... Did he have rabies? Yes, yeah, so that's what they, they think he's, he had rabies or something like Where that. Where the fuck did he get rabies? I mean, he was... A like, raccoon? Oh my gosh, I want there to be, like... As I pondered over forgotten lore. Oh, he's so fluffy. Ah! Oh, no. Oh, no. 
But uh, yeah, that's that's a fun discussion, especially to bring up in class when you want to distract a teacher. I mean, you've distracted me. I didn't know it was rabies. Yeah. I thought it was well, just like Victorian sadness sickness. There's there's some debate over whether it was rabies or something else, but... I'm going to um, go with the something else, Kim, because rabies makes me sad. Rabies is sad. But um, I'm deep in the It's a Swan, it's a swan song. So we were of differing opinions. Uh, let us know what you think. Yeah. Tweet us. Do something think, like yeah. that. Yeah. I can't believe I used the phrase tweet us. I don't think that's what we're doing anymore. No, we're doing uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Yeah. So our next book is Beloved by Toni Morrison, as Amanda just told you. Uh, um, get prepared for... If, if y'all thought that this was hard to stomach, uh, there are not many books that make me hate white people. But... uh. Beloved is one, and then Roots. I know that's not a book, but Roots is a movie is another one. Roots is tough. Roots, Roots is really tough. I have to watch Django Unchained after this for a little black revenge. Okay. So if you want to find us on social media and tell yes. us whether you think that Janie is dying of rabies, yes, um, you can find us at Unfortunately Required Reading on Facebook. Yep. Unfortunately RR on Twitter. Yes. Unfortunately Required on Instagram. Woo! Unfortunately Required Reading.com. Which is a beautiful website. It's so fun. Um, and if you'd like to suggest a book for the podcast or have a funny story about your English class or mm-hmm. literature or anything like that, you can email us at unfortunatelyrequiredreading at gmail.com. Yes. And then um, I just realized something. What? I have not completed my end of the bargain. What's your end of the bargain? So you had to read Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. I have to read Grey. So after we have an immense heartfelt discussion about Beloved, I will have to read passages from Grey. There we go. Go read a book, but don't read Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, read literally any other book. Thank you. Bye. Bye.